Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. Kick it? Whoa, now here's a man who will not take it anymore. <laughs> a man who's standing up against the filth, the cider house rules, the chocolat, the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> Here is a man who stood up. <laughs> What'd you, you think about you, that? You threw, in, you threw in a little, uh, some extra moments in that, that quote. I like it. Yeah, I mean, I also thought about saying one day a real rain is gonna come and kick all these bad Oscar nominees off the pedestal. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Um, I think you could do a whole routine. I mean, you should do an album. Yeah, I definitely have the talent. In this bonus episode, we're talking about Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, which was nominated for Best Picture in 1973. And hey, it's available now on Netflix streaming. Here's the trailer. Only to the end of March. Oh, hurry up then. If you're listening to this before the end of March. (laughs) (laughs) Second call, 401 Fort Avenue, 417. De Niro. In Bang the Drum Slowly, the critics called him a brilliant new talent. After Mean Streets, they said he was a genius. For his performance in The Godfather Part Two, they gave him the Academy Award. Come on, man. Just get me out of here, all right? Now, Robert De Niro creates a terrifying portrait of life on the edge of madness. Tabby, just forget about this. It's nothing. Taxi Driver, a film by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, people do anything in front of a taxi driver. I mean, anything. People too cheap to, to rent a hotel room. Oh, driver, hurry up, will you? People want to embarrass you. It's like you're not even there. It's like, you know, like a taxi driver doesn't even exist. This city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. I think I know what you mean, Travis. But it's not going to be easy. You guys get to be a secret service man. What? I was just curious because I thought maybe I'd make a good one. Hey, what kind of guns do you guys carry? 38s, 45s, 357 Magnums, something bigger maybe. Hi. I'd like to volunteer. Why? Why? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. The taxi driver is looking for a target. Getting ready. Getting organized. Preparing himself for the only moment in his life that will ever mean anything. How much for everything? 350 for the Magnum, 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. That taxi driver's been staring at us. You talking to me? You talking to me? I don't know who's weirder, you or me. You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. Oh, yeah? You will never see a more chilling performance than this. Robert De Niro in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Jodie Foster, Albert Brooks, Harvey Keitel, Leonard Harris, Peter Boyle, Sybil Shepard, Taxi Driver. 
Was that Vincent Price doing the narration for that? <laughs> <laughs> this is pre Don LaFontaine. Man, that was a long trailer. It was kind of long. But I'm it, sorry it, about but that. But it's everybody. kind of a great '70s exploitation. It is. Um, did you ever watch Grindhouse in theater? That no. Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez. They they did fake trailers in the middle of this double feature, and one of them was <laughs> for Thanksgiving. This was like a fake horror movie, and it was like this year there will be no leftovers. <laughs> and it, was, it was very similar to to uh, that guy. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> Well, it's great to hear those moments of Robert De Niro because it is a it's a classic performance. The um, this was nominated for four Oscars. It won zero. Best picture, best actor, De Niro, best actress in a supporting role, Jodie Foster. Which is strange to think that she was ever you know pre Silence of the Lambs, et cetera, et cetera. Everything else she did. I love I love like seeing the young actresses and actors. Before they made it, yeah, like twelve that. years old. Yeah, here. no, very controversial Crazy. that she was used in a role as a prostitute. Best music original score nominated for Bernard Herman. Is it Herman? 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 I, I never. I, I did Herman. I don't think I ever heard how it was said. Coming up in the show, we'll ask each other the questions three, three unique questions to pierce the armor of ignorance and harvest the unequivocal truth about this movie. <laughs> I feel like you're kind of making that description sure, more and more yeah. florid every time it was the I, I same as like last it. time but i think i'm gonna keep harvesting keep... was harvesting in there last i don't time? remember <laughs> so yeah you were talking about some awards here it won the palm d'or at the 1976 can or con i never can. know how I to say can. that um but it was apparently booed for its graphic violence yes. in the final shootout mm -hmm. in 2012 sight and sound named it the 31st best film ever in its critics poll and the fifth greatest film of all time on its director's poll really and afi has it ranked as number 52 on its 100 greatest movies of all time there are more, but the acclaim was not universal, so I want to get into um, a quote from Leonard Martin. He gave the movie two stars and called it a gory, cold-blooded story of a sick man's lurid descent into violence, which was ugly and unredeeming. So, Brian, my mm. first question to you. How did you interpret Travis's, Travis Bickle's sickness and descent? Are we meant to see a cynical truth in his disdain for the world, or is his resentment a product of something else? I think that Travis Bickle, Robert De Niro, was probably to some extent born the way he is. I think he's basically a psychopath, and there's a lot of psychopath movies out there. Um, so he doesn't really have much of a moral compass. But I also think that he is a product of his environment. Um, so the movie really plays all this up. That's The environment is so incredibly rich and creative in how it's made, which is why I think this is such a movie... Um, one of the reasons that it's such a classic, so many elements of the movie are so, you know, provocative and the directing is certainly one of it. And the sets and, and part of it, yes. apparently there was a garbage strike during the filming mm. of this movie and a heat wave. So when you're driving down so you really these New York City it. streets, yeah. you smell it. But also that really was real trash that was wow. piled up for weeks and weeks on the street. They didn't bring that in. <laughs> nope. um, so he's got this, he's surrounded with filth and fog. Um, and neon, and that's how Travis sees the world. So he's so immersed in all that that he doesn't even understand why when he takes Sybil Shepherd out for a date that she wants to walk out of the porn theater, he's like, surprise, what? Yeah, I don't understand. Like, yeah. we're going to a movie, right? It's just a movie. She's like, Travis, you don't get it. So here's my problem with the movie, <laughs> is that if we think that Travis being immersed in this world is part of what maybe creates and sends him into, you know, causes such a problem with him, then is that also what Scorsese is setting us up for? Not that we're going to go and do that, 
But does it bring out the worst of us to sit and be in this world for that long, like like hmm. what Scorsese has done to us? Hmm. I saw a quote that Scorsese said that he feels like movies are like dreams or drug-induced reveries. Mm-hmm. And I kind of that's sort of what I think that we get here. It, it, it just feels so... There's a fluidity to this movie, and, and the music is sort of constant, and it's dreamy, and the slow motion, and the fog, like you said. I don't think that this is really supposed to be real life. And so, for me, I don't really take it as literally. I kind of mm-hmm. felt like it's more... I think that Travis's perspective gives us, I don't know, some insights on like a lot of different forms of social disconnection. I see it kind of more about loneliness and, and different kinds of trauma than I do. I can see that also. I also think that... Now, you know, it's 2021. So how many years later, 45 years later, now that we have been through the world of, you know, Columbine and all kinds of other shootings, um, I think we have a little bit different perspective on what causes that if there is a cause exactly. Yeah. And you think about like, maybe these people sort of needed a little more attention, positive attention in their lives and someone to kind of put an arm around them. That, that that occurred to me throughout this movie. Like, I don't I don't know what the, you know, this is five years before I was born. It's kind of hard for me to well figure out what it was really it's like. It's post-Vietnam. They make a That's point true. of saying that he's it's post-Vietnam. He's got his jacket, so we assume that he's, you know, yeah. he was in some branch of the military. Yep. So, yeah, you have the, the PTSD threads. You have mm-hmm. the social isolation ideas. But then sexual frustration plays a big, big part time. in all of this also. Yep. Um, I did some reading about Paul Schrader, the, uh, the screenwriter, mm-hmm. and apparently... A lot of this is based off of his real life. He he had insomnia. This yeah. is a post-divorce. And then he got, he had a stomach ulcer. So he wound up in the hospital. This was after he was living in his car for a little bit too. And he said, when I was talking to the nurse, I realized I hadn't spoken to anyone in weeks. That was when the metaphor of the taxi occurred to me. Mm-hmm. That is what that That is what I was. This person in an iron box, a coffin floating around the city, but seemingly alone. Hmm. I, I feel like that says so much it does. about not only his headspace writing it, but about it's kind of about loneliness just as much as it's about post-traumatic stress. I loved how the, so many times uh, De Niro's character just doesn't respond to a lot of questions and it's really awkward. Like, is he going to, is he going to answer that question? And he doesn't. And it's like, you sort of start to feel more sorry for him because it's like, he doesn't really know what to say Yeah, and he doesn't understand how socially awkward he is. Um, And you know, it's it. How, how do you? What do you do with somebody like that? How do you help somebody, or how do you befriend somebody like that? Or you know, it's it's. Ebert also it's wrote something like in the "You talking to me? I don't see anybody else around." He said the "I don't see anything else around" part of that quote is the truest line in this movie because yeah. he is by himself and he's just he mm-hmm. lives in his head. He does, which is sometimes a dangerous place, Brian. It is. Um, let's go on to another of our questions three, shall we? It's your go. My my goal. My, my first question is, is there a moral statement? <laughs> We're back to morality. That Scorsese is making in Taxi Driver. If so, what is it? Moral statement, no. I'm going to say no. Um, <laughs> I don't think that we're supposed to see Travis as a savior. And I, I, I've seen on a lot of quotes from Scorsese after the fact he's called him an avenging angel, which... I think could kind of Scorsese said that? Scorsese has, has said that he saw him as an avenging angel. There's no angel. morality in that? Is he kind of see him as like a twist, like an anti-hero? Kind of, yeah. yeah. But I don't think that we're supposed to see the world as scum, <laughs> as Travis calls it. Yeah. And I think that if we're, if we're to take Scorsese's quote literally, then we're supposed to believe that the world is scum and that his actions are warranted. 
which I, I, I don't I don't think that there's a, a real a real case for. I, I said before, I think I see it more as a as a story about trauma and loneliness and um, and the dangers of, of kind of not being not being accepted in a world that has no place for people who are different. It's another movie where someone gets away with murder, and not only one murder, but does he just, though? He does. Or, I think we're going to get to this. We're going to get to that. Yeah. But in my opinion, I'm going to say he gets away with murder. Um, Jonathan Rosenbaum write a, wrote a really great essay about this movie in 2000. And um, I mean, says, I think that we can say about morality that yeah. pimps who own 12 year olds are bad. Yes. I will agree with you on that. And Travis Bickle comes to that conclusion also, which is he's trying to go sort of rescue Jodie Foster in that role. Who doesn't want to be rescued? Maybe not. So Dr- Rosenbaum wrote, if Bickle had been arrested instead of applauded, would the movie be remembered today as a timeless classic? That that was an interesting question. Hmm. Um, the fact that he gets away with it seems to be part of why it's so psychologically complex and interesting and sort of disturbing. Um, he and- for, Surely, he said, part of its achievement is to impart lyricism, poetry, and warmth to sentiments usually associated with genocide. Hmm. And again, it's it's twisting your expectations and possibly, I think, your moral expectations, your moral view of the world and twisting it upside down, which could in one way make us think about it more carefully. And maybe other it's maybe it's a little bit dangerous to be playing around with that. I don't know. Um, but, but maybe uh, that ahead. quote, though, I think he's right, because we also do get a scene of Travis almost assassinating a politician for absolutely and no reason. And we know that that one is like, OK, I'm glad he didn't do that because that would have been a bad idea. Exactly. But if he would have been fast enough, I guess he would have done it. He would have done it. And we would have thought of him differently. So, and the only reason that he's even doing that is because what this politician represents, this girl that he likes, she, she supports him. He's he says multiple times that he doesn't follow politics. He doesn't know much about that world. He doesn't even know who the guy is until he gets in his cab. I don't know why he actually wanted to kill Palatine or exactly why he wanted to kill the other guys. Why didn't he just call the police? The police aren't doing anything. Sure they do. There's garbage stacked up they on the road. These pumps, these pimps are brazen. They're outside on the stoop. Yeah. They're Harvey Keitel is beautiful in this Harvey movie. Harvey Keitel is He's so perfect. Good. Pauline Kael wrote also an amazingly insightful review in 1976 in The New Yorker. Um, and she said the violence in this movie is so threatening precisely because it's cathartic for Travis. So it's like he's not, he's, he doesn't, when, when he does go through his killing spree afterward, he's like, it's like a relief. It's like yeah. he has now like, okay, I got that out of my system. And we sort of, when we see him at the end and he's kind of like, he's got his hair back. He's not the Mohawk anymore. He's not like a freak anymore. He's now like driving around. He's the hero. Sybil Shepherd gets in and he's like. <laughs> Redeems him. Somehow the, 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 this murderous rage that he went on maybe did some good to him. And that's what's so like disturbing and I think troubling about the, about the movie in the end. Um, the, the whole review is, is really fantastic. Okay, go ahead. Question I'll, two. I'll give you my question too. The music was compo- <laughs> composed by Bernard Herrmann. I call mm-hmm. him Bernard, by the way. And Do it's you? jazzy and saxophone heavy. And it's, it, it's, it's got a dreamy quality to it that I think contributes a lot to the, to the feel. But love it. Love it. I like it too. <laughs> well, I but just said I love it. You said I like I said it too. I like it too. It's got a good vibe to it, but a lot of it, namely the the main theme. So let's just hear the main theme before we get get into it here. Can't get enough of it. (laughs) 
Maybe, maybe that you, part. You get it. Well, maybe I mean, that what do you part mean? there's you, That part. They repeat that part about 50 <laughs> times in the movie. So did the repetition of that melody, I guess not, wear on you or am I just grumpy? I don't think that that is 50 times. There, I think there's oh, enough variety to it. a lot. There's a lot of drums. The drums you know. are cool. They're like, yeah. they're... It's it's chaotic in a way, and it, and it builds and it builds, but then yeah. it never really reaches that crescendo, and then this this saxophone comes back in and like levels it all out. Bernard or uh, Pauline Kael again in 1976 said that she thought that this was a problem. You know, he he finished recording it the day before he died, December 23rd. It was he got the nomination posthumously, um, which is uh, you know sad. He wasn't really that old, but um, she thought that it was too much. That the movie is so, it says, um, quote, this movie with its suppressed sex and suppressed violence is already pitched so high that it doesn't need ominous percussion, snake rattles, and rippling scales, unquote. I can understand that. However, I thought that the scale, I thought the the, the score was was really good. And part of the reason is, same reason that we'll get to about some of the directing moments, I like it when a movie takes some risks with this, kind of pushes some, some things to it to the limits. Joyce Carol Oates has a really great quote um, that the only rule of of writing, the only rule of art, I will say, is quote, "Don't be boring." Unquote. And I think that trying something like that, I think, is is good. I think it worked. I I think it gives the movie the feel that the movie needs. Mm-hmm. But I was watching this with my wife, and she was like, "Oh." this theme again <laughs> like it was driving her crazy to where afterwards i kept going around the house going like and just just to annoy her um it, it, i think it's got like almost a water torture effect to it where it like it hits you and it hits you and it hits you and i think maybe i'm giving it a little too much credit but does scorsese want it to have that effect on us where we like kind of feel crazy? like it's driving us a little bit crazy and then we subconsciously sort of can empathize more with travis's headspace i think maybe travis uh, De Niro's character is I don't think he would be bothered by hearing the same tune like that over and over again maybe he plays it in his cab all day maybe. on a loop but it feels like something that maybe I, I could see that maybe it's a little part of the insanity your question two question two Pauline Kael going back to her great review of this in 1976 New Yorker she did not like a particular shot that when I saw it I loved it yeah So Scorsese, she says, as a director, Scorsese has the occasional arbitrariness and preening of a runaway talent. Sometimes, she says, a shot calls attention to itself because it pays, serves no visible purpose. So here's the shot she's talking about. Travis is trying to get a hold of Betsy. He's on the payphone. And then as they're talking, the camera slowly pans away from him, which is normal. And then all of a sudden it pans so far away from him that he's out of the screen altogether to the left. And all you see is an empty corridor that you think he's about to hang up and walk down, but it takes like several seconds before it actually happens. So my question is, is Pauline Kael right? Is that just Scorsese being a preening runaway talent, or did you think it helped with the story? She's wrong. That's one of the most interesting shots in the movie. I agree. (laughs) It's so great. It plays to those themes of sexual frustration that I was talking about Mm -hmm. before. Up until this point, we've seen Travis get rejected over and over and over again. He even hits on the girl who serves the popcorn at the porn theater, right? (laughs) So here, I feel like the camera is like acknowledging the fact that this is getting sad. Now, he, he calls Betsy back. 
He was clueless on the first date. We already know that. And now he's not picking up on any of her signals. You know, he's basically trying to say sorry again. And she's given him all the lines like, I was sick. He says, oh, maybe you had like a 24-hour bug. She says, I'm very busy at work. He's like, maybe we can do something on the weekend. Maybe just a cup of coffee. And then he asks her out again. He asks if she got flowers. He's begging. begging. He is begging. So I think here, he is just so oblivious that the camera is giving him space. Mm -hmm. It's like leaving him with a shred of dignity because it's 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 going away fast roger ebert in 1976 his review also which is great you can read all these ebert has this whole catalog forever back mm-hmm. scorsese in his review he, he wrote this quote scorsese calls this shot the most important one in the film oh wow why okay. because he says so i'm assuming that ebert talked to scorsese about this or heard an interview i don't know he says if it it's as if we can't bear to watch travis feel the pain of being rejected oh yes this is interesting because later, this is Ebert again, later when Travis goes on a killing rampage, the camera goes so far as to adopt slow motion so we can see the horror in greater detail that Scorsese, again, Ebert, that Scorsese finds the rejection more painful than the murders is fascinating, unquote. So I think that's a great, that's yeah. a great analysis of it. Um, the camera pities him yeah. in that moment. And it's, it's like it's trying to it's so hard give him to a watch. Grace. So hard to watch. You have to turn away a little bit. Oh, I mean, Pauline Kale. Come on, she's come like, on, Pauline. She's so smart. She is. She's very, very she's confident. Brilliant. And somebody who's very confident, you feel like I have to trust their opinions, right? I'm All not the- as confident, but my opinions are probably better than Pauline Kale's. Wouldn't you say? Uh, no, they're, wouldn't they're, you say, Brian? <laughs> they're about fifty percent of of the way there. But but Pauline Kale is an example of someone who is you know she's a, a brilliant um, uh, reviewer guided people's movie taste for decades. Yep. And um, even, again, when someone is going to dare something strange, then not everyone's going to love it. But yes. But if you don't ever dare with something strange, then it's just not memorable. It's It violates Joyce Carol Oates' rule of not being boring. Uh, what she said, The Art of Pauline Kale, that's streaming on Amazon Prime. Good documentary. Check oh, that out. Cool. My question three. This is a little bit of a longer one because I want to get into that ending. The MPAA had problems with this Mm. movie because of the violence. So to secure the R rating, Scorsese desaturated the color in that final shootout. The effect is this jarring change in style. At least it was to me anyway. The The palette feels totally washed out, almost like this sequence comes from a different movie. Because of that, I think it's fair to maybe think that this ending is fantasy and not reality. No, so not. are we meant to take this climax? <laughs> Literally, Brian, am I reading too much into the style change, which sounds like it was never intentional in the first place. He only did it for the MPAA or are there other clues that kind of let us know that maybe this didn't actually happen? I'm guessing that based on your question, you think there are some clues and you're going to tell us, but first of all, I'm going to say that um, I watched the vid angel version of this movie. Because I don't really want to see the blood and guts of the movie. So I did not see this whole, all of the last section here. I know that he went in and, you know, killed all these people. And I he went killed back. three people, not all these people. That's enough. That's a few. Maybe. But if you're going to make. a murdering make, spree. If you're going to make the case that he is an avenging angel, yeah. what difference is he making killing three low-level thugs and then getting newspaper he clippings just wanted afterwards to kill and call him a hero? He wanted to kill somebody. I guess so. He killed Palantine. So then he's, he can't kill him, so he's going to kill somebody else. So um, 
the news clips are the evidence that it did happen. Oh. Unless he faked them. Come on. Or maybe that so. part is like the dream the where he, he's yeah. validating his own, his own behavior. He's seen as a hero in the end. I think that's supposed to be literal. He's, he's a respectable cab driver at the end where, where, you know, Betsy gets in and goes on the ride with him. Um, so it's, it's significant that he went on the killing spree for good to rescue Jodie Foster shortly after he was going to kill the politician, what we thought supposedly for evil. So De Niro allow, or uh, Scorsese kind of allows the character, De Niro's character, to satisfy the bloodlust fantasy by doing something that is quasi-heroic by saving Jodie Foster. Um, but the fact that he apparently enjoyed it and it gave him that catharsis, like Pauline Kael said. This is why I think it's it's kind of more... Tr- the more I thought about the movie, the more troubled I was by it. Um, I loved so much of it. I loved the... Uh, I think Scorsese, um, uh, the, the visuals and the, bl- the blending of, uh, you know, what you see in the rearview mirror with the street and the all that, I think that is so brilliant, so over-the-top great um, that I think I fell in love with that stuff. And I think that watching De Niro's character in the first, you know, 80% of it is like so fascinating, but I'm left at the end kind of thinking, what is Scorsese trying to say with this movie? I, I, you know, I have, I I just had a hard time with it at the end um, because it's like another, okay. So the guy goes, goes crazy enough to kill a bunch of people. I'll call a bunch three, um, (laughs) That um, three low level thugs. I just want to. <laughs> they're I not wanna, high level. I want to reinforce. I mean, these guys that. aren't really worth much anyway. Right? He's not making any change. Uh, how is he a hero? He he's going because he's in, saving Jodie Foster. He's saving and Jodie. He's saving Jodie Foster, who says that she does not want to be saved, and we have no evidence that she has loving parents in he, the first place. And then we get they this write letter, the letter in the possible Thank you for saving Jodie in Foster. the possible like dream dying right. sequence tell hallucination me. whatever you want to say. Come on, also, tell me. The way that her parents are in this letter, they have this like middle America corn fed hometown (laughs) voice. It's ridiculous. Thanks for saving my daughter. Like, where does that come from? I think that that just goes into the fantasy that like, really, she came from a great family, a loving family, and she ran away. And then it was, it was this, these pimps fault that she became who she became. Well, where did, how much of the environment is turning her into what she what she is? Jodie yeah. Foster is incredible in this movie. She, she really if, is. When yeah. she puts on the second pair of sunglasses, <laughs> my fa- one of my favorite moments. In it's the a movie. good movie. I mean, good moment. <laughs> but also the Civil Shepherd moment. She's good. He, she gets in the in the car and gives him like some redemption. Like so, you did it. But do you think that that's supposed to be a fantasy? Yeah. Why? I th- well, okay. Uh, I'm going to read another Ebert quote here. Okay, go ahead. Did Travis survive the shootout? Because I'm going to maybe give it to you. I'll give this to you. Maybe okay. the shootout actually happened. But ma- but everything after it, that five minutes, I think that, that, is, that that's, that's, that's not real life. Really? Are what? we experiencing his dying thoughts? Can the sequence be accepted as literally true? I'm not sure there can be an answer to any of these questions. The end sequence plays like music, not drama. It completes the story on an emotional, not a literal level. We end not on carnage, but on redemption, which is the goal of so many of Scorsese's characters. There's another quote here um, that kind of talks about what we talked about before. Like if things shifted just a little bit, if he killed the politician instead of these guys, we would mm-hmm. see him very differently. Mm-hmm. But did you notice the very last shot of this movie? This is after we see the, the clippings that call him a hero. This is after we see the letter from the middle America parents who are so thankful and they owe, they owe them, they owe him their lives. And after the Sybil Shepherd loose ends, all the loose ends are tied. Right. He gets in the cab. She gets out of the cab. He starts driving away. And I actually 
rever- I, I rewound as if I was watching a VHS. I rewound the tape rewind. to watch the ending again because he looks in the rearview mirror at one point. We don't see anything in that rearview mirror. And then like you get this quick cut of his eyes looking again and like turning the mirror. Right. We see nothing and the movie ends. And I rewound that to, f- to to see if maybe I missed something. And I feel like that's kind of like a clue that there's like a glitch in the matrix. Like hmm. something is off here. Why, why would Scorsese decide to end his movie on a final shot of Bickle looking at something that we don't see and looking confused? I think it sets the whole thing off to kind of, it's almost like a wink at the camera. I can see what you're saying. It certainly would change the, what I keep, you know, I know, we're having a difference of opinion on this, but it would change the morality of the movie quite a bit. If the ending is a fantasy and he gets like, I mean, justice would also be served that Travis Bickle gets, you know, in jail for life also at this point, if that's, if, if, but if we just don't know what happens to him and that's all fantasy, that is an interesting idea. I did not, I certainly didn't think that at all when I was watching it. Um, so I, I yeah. rewound it, like yeah. I said, because it was just such an odd shot. It caught my attention. Mm-hmm. And then when I was doing all this reading on the movie after, I was kind of had my, my antenna up looking like, did anybody else notice this about the last shot? And I found that Scorsese in interviews actually said that the final shot implies that Bickle might fall into rage and recklessness in the future. And he is like a ticking time bomb. And uh, Paul Schrader added on the DVD commentary that Travis is not cured by the movie's end. So like... I don't know. That I agree with. I just think that it is, it's a very clean um, five minutes that doesn't mesh with the rest of the movie at all. And the fact that that shootout scene is so different visually than the entire rest of the movie, I can't look past that. Mm-hmm. I get that he did it, the desaturization for the R rating, but. Well, <clears throat> I think no matter what Paul Schrader and Martin, Martin Scorsese said about it, it's sort of like what Todd Field said, that in the end, if they if they intended that to be a fantasy or not, the point is that this is now art separate from them. Yeah, it they, belongs they don't to us control it anymore. Now. So yeah, I think that that could be a very valid, uh, a very valid interpretation. It'd be curious to see what other clues there are toward that earlier on. Not that they have to exist because it can just take a turn. Yeah. But fascinating movie. When I first yeah. saw it, I thought I loved it when I first saw it. And then the more I thought it, it sits with me. It's kind of, the complicated sour morality you, you, you don't soured you, you on me a, a little bit you have trouble wrestling with that i, I think. do i do <laughs> i think that uh you still owe me a question three do i oh, let's boy. make it a quick one yeah let's make it a quick one okay my question three is is this a horror movie no pauline kale said it is <laughs> no and we all know that pauline kale is right if horror movies have one <laughs> criterion it's that they're they try to scare you. Yeah. This movie has violence. It's not trying to scare you. A.D. Murphy, Variety, 1976. So again, a, an original review. He said Paul, Paul Schrader's original screenplay is in fact a sociological horror story. So I think the reason that is even suggested is that it is um, the, the horror or the, the violence, the evil, so to speak, is not necessarily... Um, uh, I guess it's allowed to win. That's one thing that I feel like is 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 key in a in a horror movie. Um, but I don't know if I, hmm. I, I think to me horror to me horror usually I, I like uh, Blake Snyder. He wrote the Save the Cat books um, that a lot of people look at for screenwriting tips. He said that horror in, usually involves some kind of supernatural element. Like this person is so evil or so you know 
that have such some kind of almost power that you, you really can't defeat them. Psychopaths are often kind of seen in that way, you know, like Hannibal Lecter as um, just is different from a normal person in some kind of quasi supernatural way. So I don't really know the question, don't know the answer to that question. That's why I asked you. And I, answered I don't know it the definitively. answer. American Psycho horror. And no, but I would say that there are more scenes in that movie that tr- that, that go for that <laughs> more visceral. than this because it's gory. No Country for Old Men. Horror? No, no. Supernatural evil guy. The supernatural. How about thing, Joker? I, no. These are these What's are all- better, Joker, which seems to copy Taxi Driver. <laughs> Or taxi driver. <laughs> taxi driver. I mean, I like Joker a lot, but but Joker is cribbing Taxi Driver. So totally. So There's cr- so many scenes the that look like they're they're just uh, a complete copy. Yeah. But I also thought it would be interesting to watch it again after watching Taxi Driver. Oh yeah, for sure. So I don't want to run through a a, a couple quick trivia uh, pieces here. De Niro got his uh, Taxi Driver's license before this yeah. movie in, in in order to prep, and he drove around New York for a couple of weeks. He also lost thirty five pounds for the role, but he likes doing that. We already talked about Rage, Raging Bull. He's he's a you know shifting weight guy. You talking to me? Improvised. Nice. Improvised. How cool is that? Beautiful. So <laughs> we said that Jodie Foster was twelve years old before being given the part. She was subjected to psychological testing with a UCLA psychiatrist to ensure that she would not be emotionally scarred by her role. And apparently this is in accordance with the California labor law. When you have kid actors, it is interesting how pretty, pretty troubling roles, you know, how does that, what does it do to them? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think that he, that she has a 19 year old sister and the 19 year old sister played a stand in, in some of these roles. So mm. like that scene um, with uh, Harvey Keitel, he kisses her at the end. That had to be the sister, I guess. Interesting. Um, very last one that I'll say. I've got a bunch more, but we run out of time. Um, John Hinckley Jr.'s attempted assassination on President Ronald Reagan in 1981 was fueled by taxi driver delusions. Yikes. He gave himself a mohawk and said that his actions were an attempt to impress Jodie Foster. Wow. And he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And apparently... Was Travis Bickle insane? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> when Scorsese heard about all this, apparently he temporarily thought about quitting filmmaking, wow. which I believe for zero seconds. I think that's <laughs> nonsense. Even for temporarily he thought about that? No. I believe it. He did not think about quitting filmmaking. I think he might have. <sighs> Are, we, are you ready to wrap this up? I'm ready. I think it's, that we've had a good talk. I think we have. Um. That means you got to do your outro speech. Okay. All right. Sorry. 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 <laughs> we want to hear from you. you can there find, we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the, my voice here to, mm-hmm. to make it sound more exciting. We want to hear from you. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com or on Facebook and Twitter at bestpicturethis. Any comments you make, we'll always consider to read on the show. If you want to support the show with cold, hard cash and get early access to content, visit patreon.com slash Best Picture This, or look for the Patreon button on bestpicturethis.com. And thanks to WNZF and Mark Gilliland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else to get your podcasts. Until next time, if you know a Travis Bickle in your life, Oof. give him a hug. He needs one. He probably needs it. I think so. Kick it.